Hello, everyone. Today, what I'd like to do on our fifth birthday is to talk about the devil. Um, I do. I really do. I want to talk about the devil. And um, even to mention, even to say the devil, it's almost funny. Um, we seem today to trivialize the devil, even, even in our language, even when we're talking about like, Dave, you're going to be preaching on the devil and just the way we say it. It's not like ominous. It's funny. You're like, yeah, the devil, man, the devil. And it's funny, but it's not ominous, not scary, which is the exact opposite picture that we get in most of scripture. Um, the reason why I want to do a sermon on the devil is that at the end of Peter's letter, we just finished the book of first Peter. And I promised you a sermon on the devil. If you remember, um, I don't think anyone was going to hold me to it, but I was going to hold myself to it. Um, when Peter's writing to a letter to the, the church that was scattered throughout Asia Minor, he warns them at the end of his letter, he says, resist the devil. James actually picks up on the same language, and he says in the book of James, resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, it's hard to resist what you can't see. It's hard to resist what you're ignorant of. And so today, what I think would be good and right for us as a church is to learn about our enemy, how we might first realize that he is indeed an enemy and how we might resist him by discerning truth from error, light from darkness. So if you have a Bible, would you please open it up to the letter of First Peter, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. The text will be on the screen for you to see if you don't have a Bible, but if you do, please open it. Make good use of why you brought it to church in the first place. Open it up there. First Peter, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Let me read this text to you. And then we'll pray for our, our time in God's, in God's Word, in the Bible. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be alert, he writes, and of sober mind, or that another way that's translated, self-controlled. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. This is God's word. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word and its truth and its faithfulness to this community, God. We are people that continue to put ourselves under submission to you and, your, and the scriptures and want to learn the scriptures and want to know them. And through that, know that we can find life and peace um, we, we know that we can find, we find God in the scripture. So Lord, lead us today. Lead this community in truth. Your word is truth. May you expose the enemy of our souls for what it, he is. And I pray, God, that you would lead us all into life and goodness and peace that comes from Jesus Christ, our Lord. Anoint me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, the first thing that might pop into your mind when you begin, when I begin to speak about the devil or Satan is, I cannot believe that you want me to believe in the devil. Now, when I said we're going to teach on the devil, you might have like snickered or sneered or something and said, okay, I can't believe this guy is going to actually talk about the devil and want me to believe in him. How childish, how foolish, how fairy tale-ish is the devil. Next, you probably are thinking, I want you to believe in vampires and dragons like, that's kind of what we do with Satan. We go, Satan has horns, and we'll read a little later in Revelation where we get that from. Horns, and he has a tail, and he has a pitchfork, and he, like, rules hell, and he's standing down in hell waiting for, and welcoming people into hell, like, welcome to hell. It's really hot here. It sucks. I'm Satan. That's where I live. 
Sometimes I pop up on earth and do some stuff, but this is where I live. We kind of think of Satan like that. And then we put him in the categories of dragons and fairy tale uh, uh, vampires and stuff like that. And we kind of just say, well, we, we kind of regulate him like he's, he's fake. He's not really real. Um, I can't believe you want me to believe in the devil. The devil is kind of the stuff and vampires and dragons are the stuff that we watch on HBO, but we know it's not real. That sort of thing. We modern people have a hard time believing in anything we can't empirically prove. And the devil would definitely fall into that category. But have you ever thought about this? What if that was the devil's strategy? Kevin Spacey, before he was Francis Underwood, was Kaiser Soze in The Usual Suspects. <laughs> and in this movie, he pulls the wool over everyone's eyes in the film and even the audience. And at the end of the film says this famous, famous line. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he didn't exist. What if that's Satan's strategy? To pull the wool over everyone's eyes, to regulate him to this character, this almost now even a beloved character, Satan, the devil. And we just say, well, he's just this. He's not, he, he, he doesn't trick us. He doesn't lead the whole world astray. Of course he doesn't do that. Of course there's no devil. Now, maybe you want me to quote someone more reliable. Okay, C.S. Lewis. So more reliable than Kaiser Soze. There are two equal and opposite errors to which our race can fall into about the devils, he writes. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. One's to disbelieve and one's to be so fascinated by them, almost demonically fascinated by them. I think Lewis today would find in our secular world that we, both, we do both of what he's talking about. We both trivialize the devil, as well as disbelieve in the devil. So the devil turns into a bad boy who often comes through as someone who is quite likable. We quite like the devil character in movies these days. He's the fun one. The devil is the cute, fun one. Now, if you're here and you don't really believe in God, and I know that there's several, several uh, actually a lot of people that come to our church that are exploring Christianity, that are invited here from friends or just wander in, they don't believe in God. If you're here and you don't believe in God or in the devil, let me appeal to one more person for you. Columbia University professor Andrew Del Banco. Del Banco, who's right there with you, he's secular liberal, wrote a book a few years ago called The Death of Satan. And in this book, he makes the case that secular people have no vocabulary to deal with evil, and because of that, it's hard for modern secular people to cope with evil. He argues that secular society oscillates between scapegoating or blaming the other. We don't know what to do with evil, so evil is always them. It's always been them. Since the Civil War, it's been them. It's the other. It's not in me. It's in them. We oscillate between scapegoating and ignoring evil. We ignore it. We take selfies. That's what we do. I mean, he didn't write that in there, but that's pretty much what he's saying. Like all this evil and all this atrocity is happening. We're like, selfie, <laughs> throwback, whatever. That's what we do. Hashtag, that's, we ignore it. So we oscillate between, oh, it's their fault and being so self-absorbed that we ignore evil altogether. He says that when America came out of the age of belief, so he writes almost like a history of America and, and, and its belief of the devil. He says, when America came out of the age of belief to modern times, to more secular times, when it went from a place where Satan was live and active figure in the age of belief, 
into an age of skepticism, what we've done with the devil is we've reduced the devil to something that educated people could not believe in, he writes. He says, this was the beginning of the end of the devil as a meaningful symbol of evil. He says, when we killed Satan in our popular thought, in education, in America, when we killed Satan, all the evil that was associated with Satan was gone, and it opened the door, and this is not his words, these are my words, this is what he's saying. It opened the door to call evil good. He said, when we in America killed Satan, when we said we're way more enlightened than that, we do not believe in that, we used to have religious sensibilities, we do not have religious sensibilities anymore, we are a secular people, and there's no such thing as the devil, what we did was the things that we associated with the devil were gone, and then we started associating them for good. We started calling evil good. This is his argument. He says this. He says that when America came out of this age and we started calling evil good, he gives us one great and compelling example. He says, while the belief in Satan's existence decreased, faith in the goodness and unlimited potential of human nature increased. Rising individualism transform ambition and pride. Now, you have to remember, uh, back in the 1800s when we had a moral sensibility and religion um, kind of ruled the day more than today, we believe that ambition and pride were tied to Satan. It's very uh, 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 Augustinian. Augustine said, St. Augustine said that Satan was taking from uh, Isaiah 14. Satan was a fallen angel of light. Because he was fallen, he was fallen because of pride. And so pride and ambition were tied to Satan. Once we got rid of that, this is what the author's right, because he, 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 he writes um, Augustinian theology all in his book. What the author writes, Del Banco says, he says, once we got rid of that, ambition and pride were no longer tied to Satan because Satan's a myth. And then he says this, rising individual and transformed ambition and pride wants evils to be resisted into the crowning virtues of the self-sufficient individual. And now you have to have pride. Pride is crowning. We have to have ambition. If you do not have pride and ambition, you're not American. A hundred years ago, pride and ambition was tied to evil. Pride and ambition was satanic. But Satan's dead now. And guess what he released when he died? Pride and ambition. Guess who gets to be full of pride and ambition now? All of us. Guess what's virtuous? That. And he says, that's evil. He writes, from a secular perspective, that sort of thinking is evil. This is, he's not even, this is so fascinating because he's not arguing for God. He's not saying we've got to believe in God. He's saying we have to believe in the devil. That's what he's saying. He, he actually argues, can the religious community and the secular community come together and agree that at least there's a devil? That there might not be a God, but can we agree that there's a devil? He says this at the, at the conclusion of his book. The driving motive in writing this book has been the conviction that if evil, with all the insidious complexity which Augustine attributed to it, escapes the reach of our imagination, meaning our, he means their secular liberals and religious fundamentalists. If, if, if evil escapes the reach of our imagination, it will have established dominion over us all. You know what, he, you know what he's saying? Professor Del Banco is saying, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince enlightened modern secular people that he didn't exist. And then he goes further and he says, and by doing that, he has established dominion over us all. This is what a secular philosopher writes. He says, because we killed Satan, 
he actually has dominion over us all because we don't know what evil is anymore. And then evil, its insidious way to get inside of every human heart, every human soul, has worked its way, and now Satan has dominion. This is funny because this is exactly what the Bible teaches us about the devil. This is exactly what the Bible teaches us about Satan. So who or what is the devil? Who is the Satan? Satan, Hebrew there, is hasatan. That's, that's where we get the word Satan. The Satan. It's, it's a, like a proper name, the Satan. He's an adversary. He's an opposer. First, this hasatan shows up in Genesis 3 as the serpent. We get clarity on this later. Shows up as a serpent to deceive Adam and Eve. To draw them, to accuse, to draw them and then accuse them. To draw them away, tempt them away through some sort of alluring, sort of alluring fashion. To draw them away from love and trusting God's word to believing in themselves. Don't you want to be like God? And the funny thing is they were made in the image of God. So they were already like God. But Satan's a tempter. The second word we get, um, the two most popular ones, Satan and the devil, the Greek, um, uh, uh, Diablos, slanderer, accuser. The names of Satan and the devil um, are interchanged in the Gospels. N.T. Wright says this about the Satan. He says, The biblical picture of the Satan is a non-human and non-divine, quasi-personal, quasi-personal, I need to find that for you a second, so hold on to that word. The biblical picture of the Satan is a non-human, non-divine, quasi-personal force which seems bent on attacking and destroying creation in general and humankind in particular and above all on thwarting God's project of remaking the world and human beings in and through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. In short, this is what the Satan, Hasatan or uh, Diablos does. This is what his role is. Satan's aim is death. The devil's aim is death. The death of humanity, the death of creation, the death of all that is good. This is physical death. This is emotional death. This is spiritual death. Jesus says this in John 8, speaking to religious leaders who were up against and opposing his ministry. You belong to your father, the devil. That's not good when Jesus says that. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. What are they? He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of all lies. Satan, the devil, wants death. Destruction. The destruction of all that is good, that is of God. Creation, humanity, everything. And Satan calls it out. He goes, you, are your, you have your father, the devil, and the devil has been a murderer. He wants death and destruction from the very beginning, and he's a liar, and he's the father of all lies. And when he lies, it's his language. You and I speak English, he speaks lies. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says this. Here, Jesus contrasts the kingdom of light to the kingdom of darkness. He says, the thief, which is another way of saying the devil, the Satan. The thief comes only to steal and to kill, kill and destroy death, destruction, to rob us of our glory, to rob us of, of, of our glory in God, to rob us of all the goodness of God. Still, kill, destroy. I have come. This is my kingdom, Jesus says. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
Jesus contrasts his kingdom and purposes to Satan's kingdom and Satan's purposes. Now, I told you I'd get back to this quasi-personal thing. The reason why I like it when N.T. Wright calls the devil a quasi-personal force is that Satan, in the scriptures, is both someone and a metaphor. He is a powerful spiritual being throughout the scriptures. He is a personal being on an angelic level who is completely evil, who manifests himself periodically throughout the scriptures, but an angelic sort of being. And he is a metaphor for the engine of evil itself. So he's behind all evil, all lies, all death and destruction. So he is a person, but he's also a metaphor. He's looked at as the devil, an angelic kind of presence that's bent on evil, but he's also the engine that drives all lying, cheating, slander, opposition to everything that God holds dear and good. So I like that quasi-personal thing because he's personal, but he's not. He's a being and he's a force. Rene Girard, who is a professor at Stanford University and a prolific writer, um, he's really hard to read. I'll be completely honest with you, but I'll quote something I understand that he wrote. How about that? In his book, one of his books, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, he says this, Satan does not create by his own means. Rather, he sustains himself as a parasite on what God creates by imitating God in a manner that is jealous, grotesque, perverse, and as contrary as possible to the upright and obedient imitation of Jesus. To repeat, Satan is, the, is an imitator in a, a, a rivalistic sense of, in the rivalistic sense of the word. His kingdom is a caricature of the kingdom of God. What Rene Girard says, and actually this is, is um, pretty, pretty uh, a well-developed thought throughout uh, when you talk about the, the presence of evil, Satan lives off the goodness of God. Think of it like this. He lives off the goodness of God like a parasite does. It eats away at it until it perverts and devours what is living and good, like a cancer. It only can survive on the good. It kills, but sometimes in the subtlest way possible. Satan thrives on the goodness of God. He loves where the goodness of God is because he's a parasite that latches onto the goodness and he eats away at it. Now, this is why I believe um, this right here, this moment right now, is why I believe that I wanted to sh- share this on our um, fifth birthday where I, I want to kind of speak into the culture of the church. If this community here, Reality San Francisco, that God has created is good, if this is a good thing, and there is good happening here, and our community and our presence in the city and in different neighborhoods is good, you and I can bet that the Satan, the parasitic devil, wants to pervert, destroy, and devour the good. He wants to eat this church from the inside out. And if we don't realize that and resist him, he will. He will eat it from the inside out. He wants us. He wants us to sin. He wants us to, to devour one another. He wants us to hold back forgiveness toward one another. He wants us to betray each other, to slander one another. He wants us to be so consumed with ourselves that we forget our lives are not our own, but belong to God. He wants that. He desires to kill the good in this church. And I'm not saying that he will, it will necessarily happen from the outside of these walls. 
I'm not saying that he won't bring, I'm not, I'm not saying this is going to come from an article on a blog that tries to take down our church. That might happen, but I'm not saying it's going to happen that way. Or people picketing outside of our church. I'm not saying that, that that's how Satan's going to attack us. There is more likelihood of it coming from within these walls. There is more likelihood of try, Satan trying to attack us through me, through you. What am I talking about? What are we told to do? Look at 1 Peter again. 1 Peter 5. I'm going to jump up to verse 6. So if you have a Bible, just jump up to verse 6 with me. We talked about this about a month ago. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Pride and anxiety. Humble yourself and cast your anxiety on God. Pride and anxiety are like super doors to Satan's dominion. They just bring Satan's dominion right into our lives. Pride, thinking I'm, I, I know it all. I know the Bible. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live. I'm educated. Don't, don't even, you don't know my situation. That pride. So Peter says, humble yourselves, church. And cast your anxiety on God. Anxiety are super doors to Satan's dominion as well. It keeps us not trusting in God. It keeps, us, it keeps us looking inward. Anxiety does that. And then it says this, and this is, this is the exhortation for us today. Be alert and sober. That word is self-controlled. Think about the opposite of being alert and, so, and sober. Think about the opposite of that to get clarity on this. What's the opposite of being alert and sober, self-controlled? Clueless? Careless, apathetic, drunk, lazy, reckless, impulsive. Cluelessness and carelessness and apathy and drunkenness and laziness and recklessness and impulsivity. I think that's a word. I don't know. If I just made a word up if it's not. All those things are doors as well. Those things that we, we that's how we resist the devil. We have to be sober. We have to be self-controlled. We have to be alert. We have to be aware as a church that because, this is the, because through this community, God is doing good things in the city, Satan wants to destroy it. We are told somewhere else in Ephesians 4 not to give the devil a foothold. This is the interesting language that um, Paul uses talking to the Ephesian church. He says this. It's on the screen. He says, Therefore, each of you put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body. Put us falsehood, speak truth. That's God, that's a good word. In your anger, you and I will get angry, but he says this, in your anger, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Listen to this. And do not give the devil a foothold. So Paul is saying that there's something that can happen in our lives when we either hold back um, uh, truth, we speak falsehood, or when we don't offer forgiveness or we don't make it right between another brother or sister, when we are angry and then we lead to sin, that Satan gets some sort of foothold. The metaphor is that the enemy can get a foothold. And there's two parts to this metaphor. I have always thought about it in terms of tripping, okay? Satan gets a foothold and he trips you and you fall, right? Um, When we think of Satan devouring us, we think of Satan just killing us, just over it, done. But that is one part of the metaphor. We do fall and stumble into sin, But the other is, the second foothold is the foothold of control or dominion. That is what I believe he's talking about here. 
It's rather when Satan gets a foothold, we are aligning ourselves with the kingdom. Are we aligning ourselves with the kingdom of God and goodness? Are we, are we, are we copying, mimicking? Are we um, becoming uh, uh, people who bear the image of God's kingdom? Or are we being used to bear the image of the kingdom of darkness? Does Satan have a foothold? And then what we are doing is actually, actually acting in accordance with the kingdom of darkness. And he has a foothold on our life to where he's, think of it as controlling us, having dominion over us. So whenever we don't forgive, whenever we slander one another, whenever we accuse one another, we're actually stepping in the place of Satan's kingdom. You remember Peter did, we talked about this like four weeks ago. Peter did this one time with Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. Peter's like, no, no, you're not going to the cross, man. And Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. Peter aligns himself with the kingdom of darkness aligns himself with like, no, you can't go to the cross. You're going to be the king, man. You're going to be awesome, and you're going to ride to glory, and I'm going to be right there with you. That's the kingdom of self and darkness. And Jesus says, you're Satan right now. Get behind me, Satan. You and I do the same thing. When we align ourselves, Satan gets a foothold, and we align ourselves with his kingdom, we are being used to bring about evil. This is why... Uh, this is why that professor who, who wrote um, The Death, Death of Satan argues that we need to bring the language of Satan back. Because if we do not bring it back, we're all, what are you aligning yourself with? Well, it's all up to, no, we have to call evil, evil. We have to. We have to know. So then that we can call good, good. The enemy wants to devour the good and the godly in us and cause us to devour one another and to be used toward his purposes. And so Peter writes this. The enemy, your enemy, the devil, verses 8, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We get this picture of the enemy killing. Like the, the, a lion doesn't look at its prey to play with it. It wants to destroy it. It says resisting him, standing firm in the faith. All right, so this is how we'll, we'll end. How do we resist the devil? How do we resist Satan? I think I... I I, if I haven't, I'd love to talk with you afterwards, but I think it's, it's compelling enough, especially from The Death of Satan, that book, that we do need language for evil. The Bible is clear that there is evil. It's clear that this is who Satan is, and this is who the devil is, and this is what the devil desires to do. But then how then do we resist him? How do we align ourselves with the kingdom of God? Now, turn to, this is kind of fun to do this, I don't do this often, turn to the book of Revelation. I'm really afraid of this book, to be honest. I've told you this a hundred times. But I will always teach you what I do know about the book. I don't know a lot, but this is what I do know. Turn to chapter 12. I do know this. Um, in chapter 12, uh, verses uh, 3, um, you see we, this is where we get the caricature of Satan, of having, um, having uh, horns and, a, and, and, um, and is like a dragon, so he has a tail like a dragon. That dragon, demon-looking, devilish, red thing that we caricature as Satan comes from right here. Verse, skip to verse 7, though. This is where I want to read. I want to start reading. It says, Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Michael's like the archangel. Um, and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So now, see, Satan and his, and his demons aren't just like a thing. They're an actual real physical thing. They're, they're angelic. They fought back. 
But he was not strong enough, and he lost their, they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. Here it is. Look at verse 9. This is probably the clearest connection to Genesis 3 that we have of Satan and how it fall, flows through the whole Bible, into the Bible. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient snake, connects to Genesis 3, called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to, exist to tell the world, convince the world they didn't exist. This is why he wants to lead the whole world astray. And that is a lot easier when you have an unseen enemy. That is a lot easier when you're like, there's no Satan. Satan's like, exactly. I, that's what I want you. I, want, I just want to take over and rule the whole world. This is what he wants. And God says he leads the whole world astray in evil. He was hurled down to the earth and the, his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of the Messiah. One of the easiest ways to understand the book of Revelation, though I don't even know why I said that sentence because it's not easy to understand. But what happens is the, the, the whole world becoming under the authority and the rule of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is ultimately about. Now have come the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. Look at verse 11. This is where I wanted to, it's on the screen as well. They, saints, triumphed over him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. These three things. This is what I want you to, to leave with. How do we resist, overcome, triumph over the Satan? The blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and not loving our own lives. First, the blood of the Lamb. The world of the Gospels, if you've ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the world of the Gospels is pulsating with the demonic. So when Jesus shows up, it disrupts this hidden world of Satan, and Satan's exposed. If you've ever, like, read Mark, it's like you flipped on the light, and all these cockroaches start running everywhere. Like, everyone's casting out whatever, and all these demon things are popping up everywhere because the light has come, and all the demons are now exposed. Jesus exposes the kingdom of Satan in the religious and the irreligious and the oppressed and those that are full-on demonized. And then what he does, what Jesus does, is that he goes after that which oppresses us. So Jesus' death and sacrifice on the cross is a triumph over Satan. It says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 says, Jesus shared in our flesh and blood so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, death, that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Colossians 2.15 says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. That is our position in Christ. That is our, our assurity that Christ has died for us and that he has given us the victory in his name. And that we don't have to be afraid of Satan. The biggest fear here is not Satan. It's not resisting Satan. We have no cause to fear Satan. We have every cause not to resist him. We have every cause to fear not resisting him because he is an opponent that wants to devour us. 
And so we're not told, hey, fear Satan. We're told to resist Satan. And the greatest fear is that you and I wouldn't resist him. Overcome by the blood of the Lamb. The second, the word of their testimony. That word testimony is the word witness. Some of your translations say overcome them by, their, by the word of their witness. The word witness in Greek is the word martyr. What being a witness to Jesus Christ meant in the first and second century meant that they confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. What they would do is um, when the gospel would roll through a town and people became followers of Jesus, they said, Jesus is Lord. And this is what the early church believed. The early church believed that the lordship of Jesus Christ challenged all other ultimate claims on their lives. And they believed that Jesus tolerates no rivals. So when they said Jesus is Lord, they were saying this, Jesus is Lord and football is not. Jesus is Lord and career is not. Jesus is Lord and sex is not. Jesus is Lord and romance is not. Jesus is Lord and status is not. Jesus is Lord and the Roman Empire is not. Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord and he has no rivals and I will not bow a knee to anything. And that means that if I have to die, so be it. And they did. And they died in masses. And they aligned themselves with Jesus and his way and his truth and his life. And as they did, their, their lives witnessed to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They said, my life is a witness that Christ is Lord and he accepts no rivals. He is Lord and I will worship him as God and worship nothing else. And the Roman Empire hated that. They said, no, 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 no. You could worship Jesus as whoever you want, but adopt all these other things too. And they said, we will not adopt any other gods, Christ alone. Then you will die. Then we will die. And the word witness became the word martyr. That's, why, that's how the etymology changed. That word witness, we are witnesses, became death. It aligned with death. Because they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They said, Jesus is Lord, and I will align my life to his way of life, his way of living, to bring goodness. Even if it costs me self, status, my job, I will align myself with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of goodness, the kingdom of light. And if you have to kill me, then kill me. That's how they overcame the devil, by witnessing to the truth of who Jesus was. He was Lord, and he tolerates no rivals. And lastly, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I believe more than ever the subtlety of Satan works to make it our business to seek ourselves. To seek to raise ourselves, to enrich ourselves, to secure ourselves. The word for 2013, I think, was selfie. Last year's word was vape. I don't know why, but whatever. <laughs> Self-seeking overthrows the whole world. We know this. It's what we all hate about the world, but it lives in us. We have an enemy that works toward our self-seeking. Satan wants us to seek the self. In a beautiful old Puritan book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, great title, the author Thomas Brooks writes about self-seeking and Satan. He says this, self-seeking so blinds the soul that it cannot see a beauty in Christ nor an excellency in holiness. It distempers the palate that a man cannot taste sweetness in the word of God, nor the ways of God, nor in the society of the people of God. It shuts the hand against all the soul-enriching offers of Christ 
It hardens the heart against all the knocks and treaties of Christ. It makes the soul an empty vine and as a barren wilderness. Self-seeking is soul-eating. St. Francis of Assisi, the patron saint of San Francisco, which our name derives from, began his life like most San Franciscans live right now. St. Francis lived his life at the beginning of his life as a pleasure-seeking party animal, a party king. He loved pleasure. But he increasingly sensed that a pursuit of pleasure was, was like him running from himself. And something changed when he experienced Christ in the face of a leper. Actually, he, he detested lepers. He couldn't be around them, but one day he decided to serve them. And as he did, and as he gave his life away in serving um, a, 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 like a colony of lepers, and as he was giving his life away, he said, there was a sweetness that was brought to my soul. And from then on, St. Francis turned martyrdom, martyrdom into a way of life. He said, I will live for the sake of Christ, dying daily to the gods of ego, pleasure, power, and success. And he turned being a martyr, a witness, denying himself into a way of life to serve the other, to put to death every day in himself ego, pleasure, power, success that threatened to dominate his life, to not align himself with the devil, with Satan, and align himself with the goodness of God. See, the danger for the Christian is not that we are helpless before the devil. The danger for us is that we will fail to resist the devil. We overcome him by what Christ has done on the cross, by aligning our lives as witnesses to the fact that Jesus is Lord and he has no rivals, and by not loving our lives so much as to shrink from death, by dying daily, by looking to Jesus and saying, I will gladly kill the idols of ego and pleasure and power and success and self for the kingdom of God. And then when we do that, church, I promise we will have life in all of its fullness. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you've given us power. I mean, real, real power over the, over the Satan's devices, his schemes, his lies, and I know that in a short sermon we can't expose and, and plumb the depths of who Satan is, but I pray now that um, there would be something that your, your spirit begins to do in this room where we sense that there is freedom in Jesus, that there is real power in the name of Jesus, that there is true freedom from oppression, from footholds and strongholds in our lives in the name of Jesus. And so I want to pray right now for, for anyone here today in this, in, that is experiencing a, a level of fear of death or a stronghold of, they just know that they've been a puppet of Satan, using, uh, Satan using them to spew lies and deception and slander and accusations, holding back forgiveness. Lord, would you, by your spirit, route out any ways the Satan has gotten a foothold in this church? And we submit ourselves, we humble ourselves before you that you would exalt us. We cast our anxiety and our worries on you. Make us a church that's sober-minded, that's alert, 
free us from the tyranny of self and Satan's dominion over us. And we say that there's victory in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. We trust in you, Lord. Would you save God? Would you draw us to holiness and purity? Would you draw us to the goodness and may the goodness of God flow freely through this church? May there be nothing that comes out of this church that is in or for the domain of darkness, but may goodness flow freely. In Christ's name, amen.